You're listening to the King's Church Podcast. Visit us online at kingswisbeach.org.uk. But before we actually start reading the psalm itself, if you look in your Bibles above the start of the psalm, it says, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. So what's that mean? Well, Asaph... Um, was a man whose whole family and tribe were charged by David with the job of leading the music and the worship in the tabernacle at Jerusalem. On the day when, um, when David brought the Ark of the Lord back to Jerusalem and everybody's rejoicing at the arrival of the, of the Lord's presence with them, which is what the Ark symbolized, we find that, that he gave uh, to various people various jobs, and one of them was for the clan of Asaph, was to be the musicians leading the worship and declaring the work of the Lord. It's, you find it in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, beginning at verse 7. I'll just read you this one verse. That day, jo- J- David appointed Asaph and his brothers to give praise to the Lord and proclaim his name, and make known among the nations what he has done. That was the calling of Asaph and all his tribe. And, you know, that that tribe continued, and so, you know, through many, many years, you'll find Psalms of Asaph. And Psalm 73 is the first of um, 10, is it, or 11? No, 11, that's 73 to 83, are all Psalms of Asaph. It's a little sort of subsection in Psalms. And just bear in mind, this is a man whose job is to sing praise to the Lord and declare what he has done. The only problem is, for this man, he's having a real problem about that. Because he has been undergoing a real test of his faith. So he starts off with the conclusion he will come to after he's explained all that happens in between. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Surely. That word um, appears again in the psalm. Surely, it's, it's a word which in he, the Hebrew word means truly, verily. Some of your translations may say truly, indeed, whatever. It's underlining, yet yeah, this is really for true. And the conclusion he comes to at the end is he says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And it's important that he starts there because as we will find, he has not been in that place for the last little while. As for me, he says, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on through these next few verses saying, I don't understand. According to what we believe, according to what God has said, you know, um, joy and happiness and success and the secret to a fruitful life is all in obeying the law of the Lord. And yet I look at the wicked and they seem to be getting away with it all. They seem to be the ones who are having such a cushy life. They seem to be the ones whose businesses are flourishing, who are getting powerful. You know, they're well-dressed. People are listening to what they say. Everything's going well for them. They've got good health. Um, 
And yet they're full of pride and arrogance. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. They take no thought, no thought of God. It's like they seem to think they're their own gods. A little bit for those of you who were here last week, that last bit Clive told us about. Now, and what's more, they get away with it and people seem to admire them and they just seem to have it all their own way. And they say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree and increasing in wealth. And then he says, surely in vain I've kept my hands clean. So it's surely again. You can see this man has been going through a real test doubts have been flying in where's my little ah here we are now the fact that he's having doubts doesn't mean that he's not a real believer it's not because his faith is slipping into unbelief doubt is something that only somebody who does believe experiences you can only doubt what you believe. If you never believed it anyway, you're not wrestling with doubt. The person who's wrestling with doubt is the person who does believe, and he's finding that his belief is under attack. As somebody once put it, doubt is to unbelief what temptation is to sin. In other words, doubting doesn't mean you, have, you aren't, aren't a believer. Just as the fact that you're tempted doesn't make you a sinner, it's the devil's way of trying to stop you being a believer, and it's the devil's way of trying to make you commit sin. It's a test, but not yet a surrender, to quote a guy called Clements. I don't know what his first name was. They only put his surname in the book that I said. So, yeah, the fact that you have doubts doesn't mean that you're a failure as a believer, the important thing is how you respond when all those doubts come flying in. Just as the fact that you're tempted doesn't mean that you're a, a doomed sinner. It's how you respond, whether you take the grace of God or whether you decide to just let your flesh have its way. So, this poor man, he's wrestling with it. And he says something quite interesting in verse 15. No, 14, sorry, 13 to 15. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted. I've been punished every morning. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. In other words, it's like he says, I know my job is to declare the goodness of God. My, God is to, my job is to build up people's faith, to give them confidence. How can I do this? I'm overwhelmed with doubt myself, is what he's saying. He says, and I'm not going to get up in the sanctuary and, and you know, sing out all that rubbish, because that's going to undermine everybody else. He says, but I don't know what to do. When I tried to understand it all, it was oppressive to me. It, it was 
what was it? Uh, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. And then there's another surely here. Surely you place them on slippery places, slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Like a dream when you awake, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. It's like suddenly the perspective is shifting. You see, while he's been wrestling with his doubts, as he says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. In other words, he says, you know, while I was letting all this bitterness overwhelm me, I was actually behaving just like an animal. In Psalm 49, we get a, a, a similar little um, allusion there that for the wicked, they're just like the animals that die. There's no point. They've got no concept of anything more than what's right in front of their noses. They haven't got the reasoning. They haven't got the, the ability to actually connect with God and to begin to understand why they praise him. For human beings, we don't, just, uh, we don't just automatically reflect the glory of God like the trees do and, and the birds do and the sky does and all creation automatically reflects the glory of God. But for human beings, the key thing is that we can sing the song that you are worthy of praise because you created all things, because you redeemed us. We know why we do what we do. Animals don't, they just do what comes naturally. And a man who has not, or a, or a woman for that matter, who has not yet been born again and, and known what it is to know God, are kind of in the same position, you know? They just do whatever comes naturally, just like the animals do. He says, that's how I was. I was slipping back into that, just reacting with my own gut reactions all the time. But actually, he says, when I went into the sanctuary of God, it's like the whole perspective begins to change. A whole new way of thinking begins to open up. And one of the key things about that is realizing the difference between what is temporary and what is permanent. Yes, now obviously, let's just say, it is not true that bad things only happen to good people. Nor is it true that good things only happen to good people. God sends his reign and his son on the righteous and the unrighteousness and the unrighteous. So actually, the, the common lot of man is common to all people. It's just that when you're in a very jaundiced state, you begin to see it all distorted and you sort of think, I'm the only one who's being suffering here. I'm the only one that seems to have problems, which is his other problems. It's not just the fact that the wicked are getting away with it. It's that he's having a really hard time. He says, I'm afflicted all the time. It's like I'm being constantly chastened. The, the verse um, that Leslie read to us earlier from Hebrews 12, it actually, if you go a little further, it says, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. If you have children, you don't just let them carry on with all their natural instincts because I'm afraid it is not true that children are born pure and perfect. 
They're born with a natural ability to sin. You never have to teach a child how to be naughty. You have to teach him how to behave. That's, that's the harder job. And, and it is the job of parents to teach and train their children to realize that they're not the center of the universe and they can't just do what they like when they feel like it, regardless of how it affects everybody else. You know what I mean? Now, here's, here's this man. He's saying, I don't understand it. God seems to be checking me, correcting me, putting me right all the time, and it's really painful. Well, yet that's what you do with your own children if you're a loving parent and a responsible one. And when you belong to God, you will find that his word is like a two-edged sword. It goes right into the depths of your heart. It reveals the motives of your heart. You find that sometimes even when you're doing the right thing, you've got a, an impure motive in it. The whole time you're aware, I need to change. That is because God loves you. The wicked couldn't care less about that, and they're not listening. It's not that he doesn't care about them. It's just they're not listening. They're not open to God speaking his word that will transform and change them. And so, yes, this, this guy, he begins to perceive now that the reason he was so baffled was because he hadn't been looking at things in the light of the final result. And what came to him as he went into the sanctuary of God, as he went into the temple, as he joined in the worship, as he listened to others declaring the word of God and the things that God had done, as he joined in with the praising of God, he began to realize the thought that actually to be able to judge rightly of the happiness or misery of anybody, it is necessary to wait until you see the final outcome. You need to know what the long-term picture is. You see, for, for, for somebody who doesn't know God, the short-term thing is what you see. Much more concerned with what's immediately here. And, you don't, and the future is kind of dim and distant and vague. And so, yeah, let's live for today. But when we begin to allow his perspective to be our perspective, we begin to see that actually, even though you might be going through a tunnel here, even though things may be very dark and difficult, you can see that light at the end. You can see the, the final destiny. You can see the purpose, the thing for which God has called you, the thing that he's doing as he's in the business of redeeming and renewing the whole of creation, that there's going to one day be a new creation when everything's going to be put right at last. And we're going to be part of it if we're willing to be transformed into the image of God that we were made to bear. But we'll need transforming because we all start out fallen. And that's what the gospel's all about. That's what Jesus has come for. He is the one who actually brings that freedom to us. He is the one who makes us new. And as we walk in relationship with him, we're gradually transformed into his likeness until eventually one day when the work is all completed, we will perfectly reflect the glory of God in the new creation that he's bringing to birth. So yes, for this man, what made the difference was he started to draw near to God again. He started to reach out again to the one whose works he'd been proclaiming. 
And at last, he's being equipped again to do the job for which he was called. And not only is he now seeing that actually all this apparent easy time the wicked are having of it, that's kind of temporary, that's passing, it's not very secure. It's very slippery ground they're standing on. But also he begins to see again his own position, his own heritage that God has given him. Surely, surely God is good. In spite of the fact that I was actually behaving much like an, an unsaved person myself, yet I am always with you. Even in his lowest moments, the grace of God was there. God never deserted him, always was there with him. You hold me by my right hand. This is where our security lies, the fact that God is holding on to us. Jesus says, you know, those who come to me, I will never turn away. And he also says of his sheep, no one can pluck them out of my hand. Nobody, once you've placed your life in the hands of Jesus, nobody can take you out of there, not even the devil himself. The only person who could take you out of it is if you decide you don't want to be Jesus' follower anymore. Well, okay, you can jump out of his hand if you're stupid enough to want to do that. But nobody can pluck you out. And he realizes, I'm standing here secure. God is holding me. So I'm held by God. And what's more, I am guided by his counsel. In other words, I want to go God's way. I may be slipping and failing and struggling at times, but I want that. And when you want God's counsel, you get it. Sometimes it's the case, you know, that God says, I've been saying all day long to this, this people, here am I, here am I, but you didn't want to hear. The person who can't hear and doesn't understand what the will of God is, is usually somebody who does not want to hear. You know, it's the sort of, ah, I can't hear, don't know what God says. Well, obviously, if you block your ears, you won't hear what God says. But if you want to hear it, you will find that he does guide you with his counsel, that he actually shows us the way to go. And he directs our path. Well, he'll direct your path if you want to go his way. If you want to go your own way, well, you have to find your own counsel, won't you? And land up in the slippery place. But if you want to hear God's direction, he will give it to you and make it really plain. As long as you're willing to respond. Because he not only holds us, he also guides us. And that comes down to all the practical day-to-day -day details of our lives. As well as those moments when it's a big turning point in life. And God usually speaks really clearly then if you're willing to listen. But also, and afterward, where are we? Yeah, afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, I've got riches that are going to last. You know what they say about, you know, you may be extremely rich and have lots of money, but you can't take it with you when you die. 
and uh, I remember chatting with my dad about this once and um, him saying, you know, he'd heard this funny story. I can't remember all of it, but, you know, this guy who, when he was told, he was a very rich man, told that you can't take it with you when you die and says, what? In that case, I'm not going. Now, of course, the reality is if you could take your money with you when you die, what's the point? Whichever way you end up, one place, it won't avail you anything. I can tell you, you can't buy your way out of hell. And on the other side, you won't need it. It's not necessary anymore. So that's what he says about the slippery places. If that's the whole focus, well, it's all very temporary. But he realizes God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Not just for today, not just for tomorrow, not just for next week, not just for the rest of my life, but forever. He actually sees there is more than just this life. There is more than just what's here and now. Somehow, as the, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, it's like, you know, amid all the apparent meaninglessness and pointlessness of, of, it, of it all, yet God has put eternity into the heart of man. We know we're made for something more than this. That we're not just a random chance result of a chance process. We are here for a purpose. We've been made by somebody who has a plan. And this is not just temporary. This is permanent and everlasting. And he sees all this as he once again draws near to God. Let me just, yeah. It's not just that he's gone to church or gone to the temple. He has actually drawn near to the God they're worshipping there. As he, as he draws closer to God, it's like the mists begin to clear away. And in communion with God, he begins to find the solution to some of the problems which mere thinking had just left him completely stumped by. As we draw near to God... He draws near to us because the key, he says, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. He says the secret is I need to draw near to God. I need to come near to him. And you know what it says in the letter of James in chapter 4? It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. To give you the full verse, resist the devil and he will flee from you, but draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is the promise. When we seek him, he lets us find him. And then I find the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And he says, that's it. I'm going to run for refuge right into the arms of God. I'm going to let my perspective be changed. I'm going to let my heart be captured again by his purposes. And then I will tell of all your deeds. This is back to what Asaph was called to do, to be those people who would praise the Lord and tell of what he has done and, and inspire others to hear and to know and to put their faith in him as well. That is his job. That is his calling. That is what God has made him for. And as he once again draws near to God, keep fresh that relationship, that closeness with God, he finds himself 
with the mists clearing away and his perspective clear and once again he can get up with all his heart and instead of depressing everybody by shouting about all his doubts he can get up and say I will tell of all your deeds I will be one of the sons of Asaph.